Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Favoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Today, we will be looking into the topic of negative interest rates. Are they a real thing? How likely are they? And what are some of the implications for pension actuaries? And to discuss this, we're joined by two guests today. Jake Meyer is a PhD and a senior economist with Swiss Re. And Marshall Posner is a CIA member with OMERS, who also chairs an ASB group looking at the impact of negative bond yields on commuted value calculations. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for inviting me. So our first set of questions will be for Jake. And let's start off by defining what do we mean by negative interest rates? Are we talking real rates, nominal rates? What exactly is the topic here? So typically when the conversation is about negative interest rates, we're, we're actually talking about negative nominal interest rates. So negative real interest rates have been around for, you know, for quite a while. They're, you know, they happen quite frequently in developed markets. But real nominal rates are such a big topic of conversation because that zero lower bound or that, or that interest rate of zero or below zero, that threshold, it marks more or less a line in the sand of where if you get below it, now, anyone who has a choice between investing in the market or investing in a security that has a negative nominal yield now has the option of actually holding cash and then having a higher return from holding cash than from investing in the in, in a security or, or investing in the market. So what that creates is a situation where if, as soon as you start dipping below 0% in, into those negative interest rates, you risk having some turmoil in the market from investors starting to significantly move towards cash and having liquidity drained from the market. So right now, nominal yields are not negative in Canada. The Bank of Canada's policy rate is, is bounded between 0 and 0.5 percentage points with that with the overnight target of a quarter point or 0.25. So the Bank of Canada does not have Canada in negative nominal yields at the moment. And while the idea has been thrown out there, it doesn't seem to be something that is being seriously considered as of, you know, as of this moment. Now, as I mentioned previously, real yields, though, have tended to be negative for, for quite some time. If you're looking at the short dated lending, the policy rate for Canada has been more or less below the inflation rate for at least five or six years. Years, tending to run between 1.5 to 2% and the policy rates having run between about 1% to 1.5% in that time frame. So while the conversation right now is, is about the you know, potential for negative nominal rates, negative real rates have been here at the short end of lending for quite some time. And, and actually, we've recently dipped below on the long end as well. Okay, so let's do a bit of forecasting here, maybe. How likely do you think it is that we will see negative nominal rates in North America? So in North America, this is actually something that I would be very, very surprised to see. And I think most people who you know, do macroeconomic forecasts would, would tend to have a similar opinion. And now the reason for this is it has less to do with Canada specifically, and it has more to do with the U.S. So with the way that U.S. financial markets work, is that money market, or this basically trading of these very short dated securities in between banks and other financial institutions is hugely important for the functioning of the U.S. financial system. In order to have the short-term capital on hand to engage in the longer dated investments, whether it's capital markets or, or, you know, or other lines of business and such, in order to do that effectively, they have to have you know, the cash on hand, which tends to come from what these short dated debts or these short dated securities in money markets. My understanding of what the Fed sees is that the U.S. goes into negative interest rates or negative non- nominal interest rates, then what risks happening is you have potential for, for a huge amount of liquidity to leave these money markets. And then institutions that own those securities go towards cash. And now, so what that would do is it would make it so this component of the financial system that is, you know, critical in terms of more or less greasing the wheels of the U.S. financial system can get, you know, can get yanked out and can cease to function correctly. So in the U.S., the risk associated with going negative is actually quite high. And then farther, based on some Fed statements, and then from our understanding of the perspective on the relative efficacy of different policy tools, is that the Fed does not 
seem to think negative interest rates are all that effective compared to a couple other options. So while negative interest rates are usually considered to be very visible and, and, and relatively easy to understand policy targets or policy tool to use if you're trying to stimulate the economy and interest rates are already quite low, there are actually a couple other policy tools the Fed still has in their back pocket that are likely more effective. And two main of these that I'd probably want to highlight would be what's called yield curve control. And, and then the other would be forward guidance. So yield curve control is more or less refocusing the Fed's activities from setting interest rates at the short end of the yield curve or short maturity lending, and instead extending their focus out to adjusting interest rates at the long end of the curve. So the, the basic idea of this would be that the Fed thinks that they still need to stimulate the economy more and their policy rate, their short-term lending rate is already at zero. And what they can do is they can start doing things like buying long-dated bonds and such to try to push long-term interest rates lower. And so the Fed thinks that when you already have the short-term interest rate at zero, it's going to be much more effective to instead try to bring long-term interest rates down rather than it would be to try to bring short-term rates down even farther. And so that's yield curve control. It's, it's kind of pushing that focus towards shifting longer-term interest rates. And the second one would be forward guidance. And forward guidance is a bit similar in spirit, although it's, it's a bit different in, in, in the application. But forward guidance is, is more or less focusing on the way that the Fed telegraphs their thinking, so to speak, or convinces financial markets what they expect to do in, in the coming months, years, et cetera. And so if the Fed is able to, to effectively convince financial markets that they expect to have policy interest rates near the floor for the next two or three years, that can be quite effective in stimulating the economy as well by one, allowing the longer dated interest rates to fall. And two, just through the act of creating that confidence that conditions will remain easy for the next few years, it changes the, the way that people invest and it changes the way that people assess risk in the coming years and such. So that's the U.S. And the reason I start with the U.S. is because the U.S. and Canadian economies and, and financial systems are quite tightly intertwined. The U.S., for example, is, 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 the, lar is you know, the large majority of, of Canada's export market. There's, there's lots of linkages in, in, in the financial system. So Canada, while policy interest rate is, you know, it isn't necessarily you know, always the same as the U.S. is, of course, but, but they tend to track very, very closely. And so if the U.S. is not going to go negative, it's quite unlikely that Canada is, is going to go negative as well. And, and for much the same reasons as well in, in regards to the importance of, of the money market funds. And you can actually see this with, with a lot of the Bank of Canada's statements in the past couple months where the Bank of Canada has actually indicated that they're more hawkish or, or more likely to raise rates or less likely to, you know, to cut rates again than the Fed. And, and, and they've suggested their hiking schedule is actually is going to be quicker than the Fed. I've seen a fair amount of forecasts suggesting that it's, it's quite plausible that, that, that we see the Bank of Canada hiking rates like, like this time next year, almost like summer of next year. So while negative policy rates are, are on the table, it's something that I would be very surprised to see from the U.S. or Canada. And, and I think that that's a sentiment that is held quite widely in the economics community. Okay. Have we seen negative interest rates in other countries in the past and how did that impact them? Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. Looking at Europe, Europe and Japan are the main ones that come to mind. So the Eurozone, Switzerland have been, have had negative policy rates more or less since the global financial crisis or, I mean, for, you know, for about 10 years. So, I mean, they've had negative rates for, you know, for quite a while. Japan has had negative policy rates for, for quite some time. So while this is something that I think it's, it's quite unlikely that we see it in Canada and the U.S., this is not an it's not an, an academic question in the sense of we're we're talking about theoretical things here. Like this is happening, right? And it's and it's been happening. So I want to say that the eurozone and, and Switzerland have been have been almost a half point below or, or around a half point below zero for quite some time. 
So with, with these countries having, you know, having done this, we, we do have some visibility in, in what sorts of effects this can have in, in financial markets and the economy, you know, and such. And, and, and one of the things that I, you know, I think is, is behind the Fed's thinking on not wanting to, you know, to too seriously consider negative interest rates is that if you're looking at the, at the Eurozone economy, if you're looking at Japan's economy, you know, it's for the past 10 years, I mean, these are not exactly countries that have been setting the world on fire in terms of having high economic growth. And these are countries that have been stagnant, might be too strong of a word, but they have been underperforming relative to the U.S. And the logic behind this is it can get a bit tricky. Because if we think about this at a relatively simple or superficial level, you know, you know, it can seem rather obvious that if interest rates go down, it's, it's now cheaper for me to borrow money to buy a car or a house or such, right? It, it, it reduces the price of consumer lending and makes it easier for businesses to borrow and invest at low interest rates and things of this nature. There are some other key considerations that can counterweight this. And a big one is, of course, the money market fund side of it that I highlighted previously, where if you take the interest rate negative, people pull their money out of money markets, and now the financial system doesn't tend to work as well because that short-term lending is less effective and such. But another one would be a bit of a shift towards credit rationing once interest rates go negative, where because these big banks and these big lending institutions are finding it less profitable to lend, they're starting to shift operations towards different sorts of you know, activities that are, you know, that are, of course, going to tend to be more profitable. And so what can happen is that now what you've done by taking the interest rate negative is create this, this bit of a credit crunch where even though the interest rate is technically quite low, credit is just not as available. And with credit being, you know, such an important part of, uh, you know, the economy and that it's, it's really what it's driving new investment and driving buying and things of that nature, that can create some, you know, some, some pretty material problems. You know, so, so while we very much have seen negative interest rates in, the, in, in large parts of the world, I think it would be tough to argue that they've been, you know, smashing success by any means. And I think there are some pretty strong arguments out there that they may do more harm than good. And I think when, it, when, you, when you pair that with the Fed and the Bank of Canada's perspective, that that there are likely other better alternatives out there. I think it's it's quite unlikely that that we see negative interest rates come to, to come to North America. Okay, and I know you've touched on this a bit already, but do you have any final comments on what the implications would be for the economy and, and more specifically for investors if we got into a situation where negative interest rates were prevalent? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I would say that there's probably two main considerations here in addition to the credit crunch one. So the credit crunch side of it is quite important with what this can, you know, the effect this can have on the lending and such. But the other two things that I would probably want to highlight are that these these negative interest rates or interest rates or really anytime interest rates fall with, you know, negative rates being you know, just to fall, you know, below zero, is that is that this this can help financial markets in the sense that it can support valuations. Like if mortgage rates fall by a percentage point because interest rates fell a percentage point below zero, that can help support higher house prices, which which can increase you know net wealth throughout the economy, which you know which can kind of like like loosen budget constraints and increase spending and things like that. You can see similar similar things in other asset classes. You know, for example, in, in equities, if we think of of equities as as being you know as being priced based on a stream of discounted cash flows and such, then what we then the negative interest rates can help support higher equities value, valuations. It can of course support the economy to that same sort of wealth effect and, and things of this nature. And, and additionally, if you have negative rates and you don't have that credit crunch, then you can of course have negative rates stimulating the economy through you know through buying, which we you know it can support asset values and. And you know things of this nature. So, so, so there is that aspect of it, and that's and that's very much in line with what the ECB and Bank of Japan and and, the, and these other central banks that have gone negative were thinking 
when they implemented the rates. Right, but but a lot of times this can be, you know, this can have the counterbalancing negative effect of of you know squeezing the banks and wash this out to an extent. But perhaps the bigger problem, in my view, is on the risk side of things. So if we think about you know negative interest rates, even if we're not treating zero as the lower bound anymore, there still tends to be some sort of uh, you know threshold that that central banks can't or, or won't tend to go below because the, you know, because the costs will just start, you know, accelerating relative to the benefits. And so the issue becomes, and, and this is just as true for low interest rates as it is for negative interest rates, but as you go lower and lower, what that tends to do is leave you with less room to, in, to support the economy in the next crisis. You can think about this with like the, with the U.S. and Canada uh, in, in the lead up to the, to the COVID crisis. If the U.S. and Canada had interest rates at, you know, 3% instead of, instead of of around like two percent in the you know in the year preceding the crisis, there would have been more leeway to support the economy without having to engage in all these relatively extreme measures on the on the monetary policy side that the central banks have been have been engaging in. You can take that example and you can apply the implications of it to, you know to to all different types of of you know potential crises that could occur. And so from the risk side of things, it, you know once you go negative or once you go too negative or once you get too close to zero, right? This you know again this is less of a threshold thing. It does create the risk of there being less ability to provide support when when the next crisis happens. And you can see this with like the bank. Japan and the ECB. The first couple, in the first you know few months of of the uh, of the coronavirus crisis, you had the U.S. and, and the Bank of Canada, you know, ha- able to engage in some fairly significant slashing of rates to support the economy. Whereas you know, whereas like the ECB, for example, just really didn't have too far to go. So they you know so they weren't able to provide that same level of support. And that's and that's likely part of the story and and why the economic fallout. You know, it's been has been worse in Europe than it has in, in the U.S. and uh, in Canada. Okay, we'll turn to Marshall now for a few questions. First one: What implications would negative interest rates have for pension actuaries, and how could this impact actuarial practice in the pension space? Thanks, Chris. Pension actuaries often rely on so-called risk-free interest rates as a grounding for economic assumptions. But defined benefit pensions have a long-term horizon, so it's risk-free rates for securities with distant maturities that tend to matter most. Short-term interest rates that are negative are unlikely to directly affect any work that pension actuaries do. The clearest example in Canada of direct reference to market rates is the establishment of the all-important discount rate for pension commuted values. Commuted values are lump sums offered to plan members in exchange for not paying those members the defined benefit pension the plan otherwise promises to pay them. The standards of practice specify that the discount rate for CVs is to be built up from market yields from two sets of risk-free Government of Canada bonds, those with maturities of about seven years and those with the longest dated maturities, typically around 30 years. There's nothing preventing those market yields from being negative. Several European countries, including Germany and France, have recently experienced medium to long-term risk-free yields, which are negative. And in fact, between June 2020 In January 2021, the market yield on the Canadian long-term real return bond series indeed was negative. It's important to note that this is the series for real return bonds, which pay the bondholder a return that's adjusted for inflation. Right now, which is for the listener's benefit May 2021, yields on all nominal bonds are positive and always have been. Real return bonds, on the other hand, have posted a negative yield. Real return bonds typically have posted a real yield that is 1% to 3% lower than nominal bonds' nominal yield, reflecting the market's expectation that price inflation will be somewhere in the 1% to 3% range. 
it was this emerging phenomenon, negative real yields, which prompted the official formation of a designated group, which I'm chair of. I'll get more to that in a moment. Turning to funding valuations of pension plans, there are two main types to consider, going concern and solvency. Within the going concern valuation of a pension plan, actuaries tend to use risk-free interest rates as a base building block in models for the long-term expectation of pension fund investment returns. These models are then used to establish acceptable practice for the setting of discount rates for the actuarial calculations in those valuations. So the lower the risk-free rate is, the lower the models will tend to say that pension fund assets can expect to achieve in investment returns, which is particularly true if the asset of, is of a class whose returns tend to exhibit a strong correlation to the expected returns of holding risk-free bonds. Now, if negative interest rates in Canada look like they're about to emerge, and I mean negative nominal interest rates, I encourage actuaries to check their asset models to make sure they function as they should in an environment like this. For valuations of a pension plan's solvency liabilities, negative long-term interest rates will have a direct impact on this work. The lower the bond yields, the larger the liabilities. Now, for any pension plans where its solvency-funded position is fully immunized against changes in long-term interest rates, that is, the assets of the plan are invested so that they move up or down in lockstep with changes in solvency liabilities with respect to interest rates moving up or down, the interest rate itself is mostly irrelevant. But, but for all other plans, lower long-term rates, whether they are negative or otherwise, mean higher solvency liabilities, which means more assets are required to be in the fund. For the subset of these plans that are underfunded, there is increased financial pressure on the funder. Finally, for actuaries who conduct analyses that include projections of funded positions of pension plans, say to conduct an asset liability study or for better understanding of the risks facing the pension plans funders or sponsors, if the plan holds assets that have a negative market yield, the analysis could include a need to reduce holdings of those assets in favor of assets in other classes that may net a better return, perhaps sacrificing the matching of cash flows while doing so. It's always important to convey to people responsible for a pension plan's well-being to carefully balance the risk and reward trade-offs of any decisions they are faced with making. You mentioned that you are currently leading a designated group looking at the implications of negative bond yields on pension commuted values. What's your current thinking and what changes to the standards could we possibly see? Yes, we are expecting to publish an exposure draft in late May 2021. The exposure draft will seek comments on two changes that the designated group is proposing to recommend to the standards of practice on pension commuted values. First, the formula in the standards that defines the variable called R7, which is in paragraph 3540.06, needs revision. R7 is a formula that estimates a yield on a real return bond with seven years to maturity. It's useful to have a formula to estimate this because this data is not available publicly. The recent dip of real return bonds yields into negative values shone a spotlight on the formula and made it somewhat obvious that it wasn't meant for economic environments where yields are negative. So our group set out to determine the best way to improve that formula. We obtained some data and analysis by Fiera Capital and what we found grabbed our attention, namely that the market data that's still not publicly available points to a reasonably flat break-even inflation rate curve. That means the market expects medium-term inflation and long-term inflation that are about the same as one another, which means that a better formula to determine R7 that is truer to experienced market data would be one that nets the available break-even inflation rate, that is derived from long-term bonds, 
against the yield of the nominal bond yield with a seven-year maturity. The data shows this would be appropriate in not only economic environments where real bond yields are negative, but also when they are positive. If we made this simple change, it would improve the theoretical accuracy of the rate in both economic environments like we had in 2020 and economic environments like we had in the years before that. We couldn't ignore what the data was telling us, and therefore we are proposing to modify the formula in that way. It's worthwhile, I think, to note that many years back when the formula for R7 was constructed, there was no data from which to test the accuracy of the formula. Now that we have seven years of data, we feel right making this change to the formula. The other change we are proposing is to put a floor of zero on the nominal discount rates that are used for commuted values. In the standards, these rates are denoted by variables named I1 to 10 and I10 plus. So far, nobody has used a negative nominal discount rate for commuted values since the required formulas applied to market data have only resulted in positive discount rates. It's worth mentioning here that one recent change to the CV standards where the liquidity spread is now dynamic and responsive to market pricing of provincial and corporate bonds relative to Government of Canada bonds should mean it will be even less likely that the resulting nominal discount rate will be negative. That's not the reason that that change was made, but it does have this helpful side effect. Nevertheless, there may come a situation in the future when, say, we have a resulting negative nominal interest rate because the 150 basis points upper cap on the liquidity spread restricts the result to a negative value, or there is a market anomaly on the final Wednesday of a month where the price of high-quality corporate bonds soar to levels very unexpected, not unlike the recent shenanigans on GameStop stock. To us, in the designated group, we found it difficult to conceive of circumstances that would lead to yields on Government of Canada bonds that are more negative than the liquidity spreads in the CV standards. There would not be many reasons for anyone to buy a bond in an economy where yields are that negative. A pension CV represents the economic value of a highly secure but highly illiquid future cash flow. In a situation where long nominal corporate bonds have negative yields, the recipient of the CV is probably best to just keep the amount as cash and draw the income without any further investment. Essentially, a floor of zero on nominal interest rates for CVs can be regarded as an upward adjustment to the liquidity spread adjustments of paragraph 3540.06.2. And if anyone is listening to this before the end of the comment period, I invite you to write to our group with your opinions on these changes. What impact could negative interest rates have on pension plan design in general, and could this further jeopardize defined benefit plans? It's really hard to say. It's certainly hard to ignore the trend to lower interest rates over the last 20 years and less coverage of Canadian workers enrolled in defined benefit pension plans. It's likely reasonable to assume that there is some causation there. Regulations in most of Canada have been recently somewhat loosened in terms of pension plan funding requirements on a solvency basis to, I think, try to stop the coverage trend and reverse the incentives for plan sponsors from curtailing defined benefit pension plan offerings. Without further relief type intervention by legislators or a willingness of plan members to accept alternative plan designs where plan members assume more funding risk, I'd guess that a continued decline in interest rates especially if they drop into negative territory, will cause a continued closing of traditional DB plans or DB portions of hybrid plans. Okay, well, thanks to both of you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Really appreciate it.
It was a pleasure, Chris. Thanks. I wish Jill Harper was hosting, but I enjoyed this anyway. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. <laughs> uh, we now have several dozen episodes in our podcast series, so uh, we certainly encourage you to subscribe. And you can do so through Spotify, Apple, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we would like to hear from you, so please send any suggestions for or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. As well, we are always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas you would like to share, please contact us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk. 